Welcome to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. Paul, I'm going to read you a sentence I consider a fine piece of writing and reporting. Did you write it? I did not. Oh, then there's hope. Yeah, there is hope. <laughs> the sentence is, scientists have found once again that wine may in fact be the answer to all of life's problems. And we didn't need a big study to tell us that. I know, but I know how much you love and await my studies. No, I don't. Yep. And so no, I have this no. study and a couple more today <laughs> oh, <no>. about health <laughs> and wine descriptors <laughs> and some maybe biased wine. Right? I can uh, hardly wine. wait. Yeah, yeah, I can oh, hardly uh, wait. You will love them. Also today, listeners ask about wines with grilling and why wine writers rarely recommend American wines. Mm. Plus, our horrible wine writing is dismissive and explosive with nuance, and as usual, we will make fun of wine snobs. Oh, boy. By the way, a couple of reminders. We are still on Capital Public Radio. They're hanging in there with us, and we are still on their uh, Capital Public Radio recommends list. That's an NPR station recommending us. That's right. And we are also on Napa Broadcasting, a network that comes out of Napa Valley College. That's an academic institution. (laughs) (laughs) There's no accounting for taste, is there? The world is a surprising place, Paul. All right, so let's get to that sentence. Let me read it again. Scientists have found once again that wine may in fact be the answer to all of life's problems. Well, it's usually your answer to most of life's <laughs> it is problems. It's my answer to life. Um, <laughs> it was a sentence was written by uh, a guy named Nick Hines of Vine Pair Magazine. It's a very popular online uh, magazine slash newsletter about the, the drinks business. Um, and it was a story that about a study that found that French oak, uh, which lots of wineries use for their barrels, contains a tannin that heals your liver. Okay, this is where I need to say that you are not a doctor and you don't play one on TV either. No, I do not. So do not take medical advice from us. No, especially not from me. Or any other advice for that matter. No, do yeah. not take advice from me. Don't take advice don't from me. Don't even Rick. take directions. <laughs> Use your Google app. <laughs> All right. So uh, nonetheless, <laughs> this, this was from uh, – the Italian Journal on Gastroenterology, Nutrition, and Dietetics. Rick, can I, can I just say that I am continually astonished at the sorts of things you read when am, you're not in the studio here with us? I am, I, I am a surprising guy. <laughs> and this, this journal, by the way, was in Italian. <laughs> so this tannin is called Roburin. And it's found in both species of French oak that's all they're used for barrels. And yeah. the study says it can com- improve liver function while decreasing fatigue and nausea. The so study can said, we suck on a little toothpick of it, uh, or do you have to maybe, use it for? Uh, I, maybe you have to. Well, you know, alcohol is actually a solvent, so that's where a lot of. And actually, the well, truth is that's what I'm wondering because I know some of our listeners have told us that the show makes them sick, and I'm thinking we could just send them a little toothpick. They need of this a oak. tannin that makes that reduces nausea. Nausea, uh, yeah, or. <laughs> or maybe air sick bags. We just we should have a membership drive. <laughs> Get an air sick bag. Sell an airship. Yes. That's right. All right. Okay. The study said that it helps protect the liver from alcohol related damage, and it said it helps gets our bodies back to work to efficiently remove toxins that affect us, including the ones in the wines that were aged in French oak. Apparently. So, so wine is the cure to all evils. This is perfect. Uh, apparently. Yeah. And by the way, there's no word on American oak or Hungarian or Slavonian, Slavonian all those things, Slovenian, but you, you got to think that probably it might be all oak. Um, this was also not a, a large study. There's only 44 people in it. But the folks who did it said it was building on um, on previous studies. 
So they kept drinking and people kept getting healthy and everything was good. Yes, I'm going to go back and find them all and read them to you, Paul, because I know you love that. <laughs> Thank you so much. I do so appreciate that. I also like the last line from our friend, the writer, who says, the compounded results point to a happy conclusion. Wine is good. You know, the only part that's sad about that is it wouldn't it have been just a little nice if he kind of slurred right at the end? <laughs> <laughs> the right. compound results point to a very happy conclusion. Yes. We are never admitting that there's any alcohol in wine. <laughs> All right. Here's another one. And it's no, wait, not Another study? Another study. Oh, God. This is from the global marketing research firm Wine Intelligence. Yep. I and, know you know, I people. brought them on. I do, I do scour their website Actually, for, for stuff. Actually, they're good people. Yes, they're they smart are. people. Uh, and uh, they found that consumers pay more attention to flavor descriptions on the back of a wine bottle. That's the back label. Than to wine shop staff, metals, and and all other wine recommendations. Uh-huh. Yep. Well, of course, the key there is you got to get the people to pick up the bottle and read the back label. But yes. that it's interesting that they'd rather hear what the person who made the wine says about it than all this other stuff. Funny. <laughs> uh, I know. Uh, this was a study done in Australia, uh, but wine intelligence says it applies broadly. And besides, Aussies are almost Americans. It's just more fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but do they have to print the labels upside down? Because they're on yeah, the other side. Yeah, right. that's right. Now, they have to actually, the wine has to pour out of the bottle. In a counterclockwise. Clockwise, it would be, I think. <laughs> Um, the, a wine intelligence spokesperson said indicators of more gentle styles of white wine, like easy drinking and smooth, got very strong appeal and were rarely found unappealing. You know what? How many times have we said this? What do consumers want out of a glass of wine? Smooth. They want smooth. That's why they, they love want us. something that goes down the throat sweet and easy. Smooth. It's yep. Everybody loves that word except all the people who sell wine. And, and what about reds? Yeah. So with reds, the study found that men were more, more motivated by descriptors like full-bodied and rich. Yeah. Women were more likely to prefer those soft-style descriptors. But for both groups, all, all of those descriptors were still appear, well, appealing. Well, and full-bodied and rich is not uh, is not. Necessarily contrary, contradictory. Not right. as contradictory to right. smooth. So right. it could be all of those things. Right. The one thing that was, and this is also not a surprise, sweetness indicators was sort of an either or. Uh-huh. There were strong feelings on both right. sides, but some people hated the notion and some people loved it. Right. And of course, you know, that comes back from training. You're trained to think that sweet wines are cheap and bad. Right. Even whether they're, right. And then you'd have a bottle of a fabulous Sauterne. And I've still seen people tell me drinking an absolutely stunning bottle of great Dessert wine. Oh, but this is sweet. I don't like it. Yes, yes. And, yeah. and the truth of it is it's not – You know, sugar does does something to wine in lots of ways that alcohol does, which is, actually makes yeah. the flavors pop. Yeah, and so, it's yeah, softer don't, and don't, richer. Yes, right, right. Um, and the to sum it up, the wine intelligence spokesperson said the label wasn't the only factor, but it does show that even though it might be just a little tiny font – there are lots of people reading the back label, and it does and ref- does need to reflect what's actually in the bottle. So, can, can I just make a small point here for people of a certain age? And you mentioned the little tiny font. If you want people to read the back label, would you please use something bigger than four-point type? Because I'm always amused when I turn the bottle around and they say, well, this is great. They've written a paragraph and a half, but nobody can read it, so it doesn't really matter. No, I, I've been telling you to get that thing on your phone, by the way, where the text comes in very large words. <laughs> no, that's, that's actually, it's very true. You also just want to make it easy to read. You know, and then this is the thing, though. It, in so many cases, a lot of wineries don't pay, you know, and they wonder why. They they're not the people aren't picking up the bottle and, and buying it. You know, they don't pay attention to really making that back label a good sell. You a know, good sell. And, you know, I there was one I make fun of this one all the time, but there was one wine I remember picking up. It's a wine I knew, it's a good yep. wine. And the back label, all it said was the yeast. 
Ouch. That's going to sell me a bottle. You know, I had, I remember. I don't remember the wine. I, I do remember it was a rosé, and it had a wonderful back label because when you turned it around, it said, if this bottle is not dripping with condensation, you should put it back in the fridge and wait a few minutes. This That's wine, a good back you know, label. And it made the wine seem immediately refreshing, right. and it told you exactly what to do in order to drink it. And they seemed like nice people. They seemed like people who got it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I, I would buy that one. So are we done with studies? Nope. Oh, man. Got one more for you. <laughs> this was from— Matt, make him stop. <laughs> I, got, well, I got one more. Just one more. <laughs> this is uh, published in Meininger's Wine Business International. Uh, so a journalist and a data scientist um, so, uh, got together, and they reviewed major wine periodicals back to the 1970s and analyzed almost 62,000 wine scores. Okay. And they found—this is going to shock you. Critics like red's better. <laughs> <laughs> the red wines yeah. were like 20% more likely than whites to be rated over 90 Of course, points. Yeah. 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 And I can even tell you which reds, too. Well, there's probably that, too. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. yeah. So, but it I'll was, bet there were not very many Gamay's that were rated 90 points or higher. I'll bet you're, I bet you're not. And Gamay is the other red grape from Burgundy. Not That's a lot right. of folks get it. And, and um, But, yes, it's just it's not cool. Yeah. Although with the, you know, the anti-cool, cool— um, Yeah, but they don't get points. They don't get points. That's true. They don't get points. Um, so the reds regularly score higher than whites across vintage and region. There is one exception we'll get to in a sec. Okay. Um, and the reds were way overrepresented, of course, in 90 points. And reds— Costs were way different in relationship to the store to the scores. He said often illogically, there's one non-intuitive, constant non-intuitive result, which was that middle-scoring reds often cost way more than highly rated whites. Well, part of the cost of red wine is that you've got to leave it in a in, for many red wines, leave them in a barrel for a year or two. So you've got the additional cost of money, and that's going to raise the price. Not only the barrels are expensive, but the Time is expensive, sure. so and there, there they're are more expensive there are to some, produce. Uh, there are there are a number of really good whites where they say the winemaking is done in the field, right? Mm-hmm. The, the farming is important, but you know the oh. idea is almost to get out of the way, right? You know, just make it kind of like you, Rick. That's people tell me to get away a lot. Yeah, get true. out of the way. Just they didn't get say out of the way. It. I was never made. They had the field, you out though. in the field, right. and you wouldn't get out of the way. So there was one reds outscored uh, whites in twenty to twenty one regions. There was one exception. And which is the wine whites are better region of Germany? Of course, yes, yes. We're, we're actually, and as the the study folks said, that the common perception there is that the reds really aren't very good. And it's ironic because the big new trend in Germany is making very good and very expensive Pinot Noir, and it's really very good and it's very expensive. And the wine industry in Germany is putting a lot of muscle and marketing effort into selling German red wine. Yeah, well, good luck getting a 90. No, actually, that's not true. Well, they Pinot do Noir, get good scores. Pinot Noir is, yeah, and Pinot they Noir do get is, good is a red. And don't, with climate change happening, Germany's getting warmer by the minute. So yeah. That's true. Well, and, you know, the um, so the, the researchers asked a couple of good questions. They are really good questions. They say, you know, are reds inherently more complex? Is that why they... In, um, why they deserve those scores? You know, are they more prestigious naturally? And critics just go with the prestige. Are is there a market bias? I think it. I think it is a long cultural tradition that the greatest wines always improve with twenty years in the bottle, and reds do that in most cases way better than whites. I think it's a leftover perception from back when the English upper class was yeah, yeah. buying wines and putting it in their cellars in their stately homes. There is a lot of horribleness in the wine world is leftover from the. British biases and the yep. British upper class of getting us snobbiness. Yep. Well, luckily, 
That's not us. That's not us. <laughs> All right. So we're going to help out a few folks by answering some questions. You are listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and it is indeed time to take questions. If you'd like to ask us one of those, go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word. If you're listening on our website, you are at the place. If you are listening on iTunes or one of those other spots, just come find us at Rick and Paul Wine. All right. Our first one comes from Steve in Rockland. So, and this is the time of year for this sort of thing. It says, do you guys have favorite wines to go with grilling? And should we do anything different with our wine when we're eating outside on a hot day? So I'm going to say there are two kinds of grilling. There's when you are grilling. And then there's when people are asking you tough questions. No, and then when you are eating what you have grilled. Yes. Right. And when you are grilling, bubbly or beer. Yeah. yeah it's kind of the thing, standing huh? standing yeah. over a hot grill and you want something cool and refreshing, and you know you got to mop your brow a little bit, and you got to smell that smoke, and you want a little bubbly, you want something that's ice cold, or a margarita, or a margarita. Yeah. Then, depending on what you're grilling, here it sounds. Stephen sounds like a guy who's grilling meat. I would think it does sound like. It that, doesn't, doesn't sound it? Yeah. like he's grilling trout or even you know game hen. He's he's grilling meat. And my all-time game hen. <laughs> yeah, my point exactly. Partridge is he grilling He's partridge? Grilling partridges over pearwood. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And my all-time for this one is, I go for Sirah, except he's in Rockland. Which and is, if you're uh, in the yeah. Sierra foothills, yeah, yeah. Sirah is good. But there are two wines up there that I think they're even better with grilling. One of them is, of course, the legendary Zinfandels mm-hmm. of the Sierra foothills, and the other one is Barbera. And yes, well, Barbera is just fabulous awesome wines. wines. I'm going to throw one more in there, um, especially if you're grilling meat. Is Argentinian Malbec in uh-huh, Argentina? Uh-huh. They have that phrase, Malbec oh, yeah. and meat. Malbec and meat. Right? They kind of that's their right. that's sort of their food culture. Malbec, yeah, you're right. Malbec does have that. They, just yeah. all those good. And ones. he does ask if there's anything you should do if you're drinking wine outdoors on a hot summer day. And a hot summer I'd day. I'd say stay out of the sun. Sacramento, it can be a hot day. Yeah. And I would say, yes, keep the wine in the fridge. Right. And that's actually not – or in a, in a, a bucket, so ice bucket. bucket. So it's yeah. an okay thing to have your red wine in an ice bucket. Yeah. You know, It'll you can, warm up in the glass, yeah. as you know all too well. Right. And you can go – you know, you know if, it, if you feel it's a little too cold, you pull it out. It just, you, know, you can put it back in. Yeah. It, it'll, it'll survive just fine yeah. doing that. But it'll taste so much better if it's a little cooler than if it's a little warmer. The other thing you could do what I do, just take a hose and hose it down. I, that's right. Yeah, I hose myself down. You just hose yourself yeah, just down? Sometimes yeah. it puts out the fire. It's you maybe use not such, Yes. No, I so just you take a hose and you fire it. You'll, oh, no, don't do that, Steve. That, that's not a good thing. All right. Our second one is from Erin in Portland. Okay. And this is a question that I agree with her. How come wine critics or sommeliers never recommend wine from America? I saw a story in Name Removed So We Don't Get Sued magazine about their favorite summer white wines. And out of 20 wines, only one was from the U.S. And Uh it was from Virginia. Nothing against Virginia, but there's not one good white wine from California, Oregon, Washington, or New York. Erin is apparently not. She knows. She Oregon. knows. Yeah. There's yeah. some good wines in in Oregon and some good white wines. Oh, absolutely. Pinot Gris, stunning yeah. up there. So uh, apparently not, though. That must be the only reason. Right. Well, of course, this goes back to that old story of wine writers always wanting to tell you not necessarily what's good. They want to tell you what they have tasted that you've never tried. Right. And. I understand the concept. Let's go on a little trip and let me show you something new. But at the same time, given that so many people in America are buying their wines in supermarkets and all the rest, would it kill you to give people a few things you that would they think, would find relatively easy to find? You would think that would be a really good thing because there are some delicious wines that people can actually find. Sure. And it's, you know, it is this thing about 
you know, it's okay. So there is a legitimate uh, goal or necessity or journalistic something where you can say, look, this is a wine you've never heard of, but it's really good. Right. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. But the other thing is, these are the wines you have heard of. Here's the ones that are good. That's your job as a critic. Right. And, you know, and Psalms do the same thing, too. You know, when uh, you have those magazine stories or, you know, those things where somebody's asking Psalm what to drink. Yes. And And they never say Chardonnay or Cabernet. Never say Chardonnay or Cabernet. Yeah. And and they have them on their menu because wine list because they need to stay in business. Or to Aaron's point, they never say Riesling from Washington or Idaho. They never say Pinot Gris from Oregon. They always have to pick something that nobody knows how to pronounce. And and she's sort of right. And and I agree with her. Nothing against Virginia because they're actually developing a pretty nice wine. But see, that shows that you're one of the cool kids because you know that there's some wine in Virginia. So that's why you recommend that as opposed to. So So it is uh, is complete snob. Snobbiness. It's that British thing that we were just talking about. They inherited it from the class thing and they're trying to look classy. Stamp collectors. Yes. They're stamp collectors. So they're hoping to find one of the bottles with a label on upside down and then they'll really (laughs) make a killing. Well, so this is actually goes back to Stephen's question. Is this how you get the label upside down? You stick it in the ice bucket. That's right. It comes off and put it back on upside down. And and you got a collector's item. There you go. All right. (laughs) Okay. So much for respectability on our questions, but that is it for now. We will have more in just a bit. Uh, You are listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. And up next is some really horrible wine writing. Okay, Paul, we have some really good bad stuff today. Yeah, we do. Here's a wine writer who just is so smart because I will I will read this. Um, the region. This is what this writer says about a specific region. The region name removed, so we won't get sued, is a playground of wine know nothings who are more interested in good fun than serious wine enjoyment. So, first thing is, can I slap this person? No. You could hit them with a cream pie in the face, though, because that would be fun. Um, actually, you know, there's a, there's a, there was a, a lawsuit in Sacramento or a court case in Sacramento about a guy hit the mayor. So maybe maybe not even that. Maybe not that. So basically what this wine writer is saying is, A, fun is bad. Fun is bad. And serious wine is not fun. And serious wine is not fun. If these people were really serious, we would be not having any fun at all. And yes. then you could drink their wines. Yes. And, and heaven forbid. And wine know nothings. Dear Lord. Yeah. What, you know, what kind of wine writer says that? I don't know. That's a bad person, Paul. I don't That's know. That's a bad person. I don't know. Let them have their fun. I'm just saying bad person. All right. <laughs> this one is just a parade of bad writing. You've got to have to stick do, with Do we need here. the trumpets to introduce the parade? I almost do, yeah. Okay. Hang, hang in here. Do, 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 do. The wine seems restrained on the nose at first, but if you persist, it opens its box and rises gently with a delicate barrage of red raspberries, crushed yellow raspberries, ripe elderberry, <laughs> ripe elderberry <laughs> drippings, aging, not age, but aging cherries, loganberry juice, and fruit. <laughs> like those other ones weren't fruit. On the palate, the juicy, chunky, silky <laughs> mouthfeel dances and weaves, dropping to high tones, then exploding with subtle huckleberry sauce, ripe black plums, Blackberries, black currants, juicy black fruit, <laughs> chewing tobacco, and nuances rife with pepper, cumin, and spice. Boy, that's bad. So, so one of the things this writers do that I, that writer does he la- names a bunch of fruit and then says and fruit. He names a bunch of black fruit and says and, and black fruit. fruit. He names spices and says and spice. Well, and then I love the chunky silky. Yeah, juicy chunky silky. Those are like three separate things that <laughs> juicy chunky, don't really belong silky. together. And then I love the fact that it's res- res- red raspberries and yellow raspberries. 
Yes, which, as we've said before, they tastes the taste same. Tastes the same. And then ripe elderberry drippings. Well, it's not even yellow raspberries. It's crushed yellow yeah. raspberries because, you know, those taste different. And Ripe, ripe elderberry drippings. drippings. <laughs> what, what is that? Is that what comes out of the elderberries when you roast them in the pan? Yes, and you, right. And then you, you, make, you make your sauce <laughs> you make your out, sauce of, that. out and of that. And then aging cherries. It's like, what, two-year-old cherries, I four years old? I <laughs> remember when these cherries were good. <laughs> yes. Okay. But it's also these things, a delicate barrage and, and nuances rife well, with. Well, <laughs> I think delicate barrage, I love the idea of rose petals coming over in big waves. Delicate barrage. You know, I'm starting to abandon them calling it delicate barrage. <laughs> yes. And yes, nuances rife with pepper. Nuances I, I, means delicate influences, and then the nuances are rife with. I also love this image, but if you persist, it opens its box and <laughs> rises grandly. <laughs> yeah, it sounds right. like the mummy. Okay, let's uh, let's get another question answered while we still have a minute or two. Okay, um, this is from Cheryl in Newport Beach. Um, she says, <laughs> "I like Cheryl already." I've been listening to your podcast a lot, so I'm beginning to worry about my judgment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as you should, Cheryl. But I'm asking you guys this anyway. My husband really likes the history of wines, and that's totally fine and sometimes fun. But when we go to wine events, he gets up front at a pouring table and talks to the people pouring forever. I mean forever. Is that bad etiquette? They're always nice to him, but I think they're faking it. Well, we don't want to ask Cheryl how she knows about faking it with her husband. <laughs> no. <laughs> but— it's um, we we the it's a funny it's a funny thing that happens here because one of the things that my company always do does when we organize tastings is we always put the spit buckets away from the tables where they're pouring the wine just because the guys like Cheryl's husband come up and they take a glass of wine and then when they taste it and it's time to move on to the next wine they have to move away the from the table and let somebody else go up there. So it's okay that he gets really excited and talks to these people a lot, but he has to be aware of the fact that there are other people there who want to talk to these folks. It's just good manners. And so I'm going to say in terms of etiquette, Cheryl, you should just suggest to him, you know, if you really like that guy that much, make an appointment, go back, visit him at the winery, yeah. and take up hours. But in a big tasting like this, it's only polite to let the people behind you not only get at the table to taste the wine— but also to talk to yeah, the guy it behind is, the table. It, this is a tough thing about these big wine events. And, and look, the people behind the counter that are pouring, half of them realize that they've got – I mean, for them it's a tough thing too because, yes. you know, these things just become happy hour and they're just poor, poor, poor. Sometimes. So, so if there's somebody who's interested, they are sometimes also interested back sure. because you might sure. be somebody who joins their wine club or comes yep. and finds them yep. or something like but that. But if you talk to them but, for 45 minutes, but the they same may be time, missing right. other people that they'd like to talk to. So there's a balancing act. So there's two things you can tell them and you can tell them that Paul said this. <laughs> no. You can tell them both of us said this, which is this, is that early and late, especially late when, when nobody, everybody else is not at all interested, and you know, you know, but early is another good time too, is when you really get your questions. And, and the other thing is to just be aware. Look over your shoulder. Don't, yep. you know, there's always that sort of jostling thing going on. Um, so, and, and remember, it's not just that they want to taste the wine. They may actually also want to talk to the person. Right. And so the, so you, you pay attention to both the people behind you, but also the people behind the counter, because is, if you sort of move to the side to let somebody else come in and that person behind the counter still keeps talking to you, then they are actually legitimately interested. And just sort of move around to the side so you, he can still or he or she can still pour and you can sure. get your questions answered. Yep. So. But yep. that's a good question. And yeah. Um, 
Yes. Yeah. And, or just bring Paul and Paul will shove them aside. That's right. Yes. I'll, I'll just elbow them out of the side, yes. out of, off the way so I can I've get up front. I've seen you do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. And this one is from Alex in Phoenix. He says, am I wasting good wine cooking with it? And is that the wine we should drink? Or how different can our wine be, our dinner wine be, from the wine we cooked with? Well, it's a really good question because I always say one of the best ways to figure out what wine to serve is to match the wine with the sauce. And assuming you're cooking with wine in the sauce, matching that wine makes a lot of sense. It's okay to cook with the wine you're drinking, but if you're opening a fabulous and rare bottle, yeah, I would tell it. you yep. that my wife is a professional chef, and she has underneath our sink two or three or four bottles of wine we've opened in the last God knows how many weeks. Um, and they're cooking wine. And some of them may be good or bad, but they didn't get finished that night. And she uses them to make sauces and things. And when I open a rare bottle of something really special, she doesn't immediately say, oh, give me a cup of that. I need it for my sauce. Yeah, because you're going to cook. You'll cook out the nuances. You know, there's there's a certain old right. line is don't Although cook. Although the nuances that were rife with many flavors, you may not <laughs> that cook That barrage out. of right, that rose barrage. from the box. You to, may not. To parade, whatever it is. <laughs> to parade the, yes. um, the, uh, the, the So there's an old line, and it's a really good one, which is that don't cook with wine you wouldn't drink. Because right. if the wine tastes bad to you, it's going right. to taste bad right. in the pan. But at the same time, you do cook, just like with anything else, you cook a lot of the, the subtleties out of the wine right. and things. So, you know, get get wines that are sort of in that middle ballpark. Um, and then uh, is you can, you know, the first rule of food and wine is wine you like, food you like. So if you find a wine that you decided you wanted to drink and it wasn't the kind of wine you were cooking with, that's okay. But if but a, if you are in the ballpark of the wine that you were cooking with, that's probably always a, always a good idea. A good idea. Yep. All right. Yep. Good. Well, another good idea is closing the show. So that is it for another <laughs> round of Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Our producer is Matt Bassini. Thank you, Matt. Thanks to Capital Public Radio for the studio use and for including us in their podcast lineup. And thanks recommended to, recommended podcast, podcast lineup. Thanks to Napa Broadcasting for allowing us to darken their door. And if you'd like to ask us a question, we're taking them. Go to rickandpaulwine.com. And if you learned anything today, we hope it's wine may be the answer to all of life's problems. Indeed. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. Remember, the best wines you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially us. Especially us.